You're listening to the news on RTHK. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the final day of the week, Friday the 22nd of July. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. Peter Lewis here with the day's business headlines. The European Central Bank has raised interest rates for the first time in 11 years. The ECB's deposit rate facility was raised from minus half a percent to zero to try and tame inflation in the eurozone, which is at a record high of 8.6%, more than four times the ECB's 2% target. The 50 basis point increase is double the guidance given by the ECB at its last meeting in June. The Bank of Japan stuck to its ultra-easy monetary policy as expected yesterday, despite raising its inflation forecast. The Japanese central bank also lowered its economic growth forecast for this year. The BOJ left its short-term interest rate at minus 0.1% and said it would maintain a 0.25% cap on the bank's 10-year government bond yield. The Asian Development Bank has lowered its growth forecasts for developing Asia for the third time this year because of China's zero-COVID policy and its associated lockdowns, along with the impact of surging global inflation. The multilateral lender now expects the region to grow 4.6% in 2022, down from its previous estimate of 5.2%. In China, GDP growth for the world's second largest economy is expected to be 4% this year, down from an earlier estimate of 5%. The Chinese city of Zhengzhou in Henan province, which is facing the most number of protests by angry home buyers who are threatening to stop paying their mortgages, is setting up a bailout fund to help cash-strapped developers complete housing projects. Zhengzhou's fund marks the first state-backed bailout proposal in China for the housing sector. And China's internet watchdog, the Cyberspace Administration of China, said Thursday it had fined ride-sharing firm Didi Global just over 8 billion yuan, that's about 1.2 billion US dollars, after deciding the company violated China's network security law, data security law and personal information protection law and also threatened national security. The CAC also fined Didi's chairman and president 1 million yuan each, that's about $148,000. The fines account for about 4.4% of Didi's total sales last year. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Benjamin Quinlan, CEO at Quinlan & Associates. With a view from India is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, U.S. shares notched their best three-day rally since May as investors continue to move into growth stocks. The S&P 500 added 1% to close at 3,999, near its high of the day. The best-performing stock in the index was Tesla, which surged almost 10% following better-than-expected second-quarter results. The Dow advanced 162 points, or half a percent, to 32,037. Tech stocks got a boost from a softer US dollar. The Nasdaq Composite Index rose 1.4% to 12,060. 
After the closing bell, shares of Snap, the owner of popular photo-sharing social media app Snapchat, crashed more than 26% after posting the weakest sales growth since going public. In Europe, the stock 600 index rose 0.4%. London's FTSE 100 climbed 0.1%. But in Milan, the FTSE MIB index tumbled 0.7% following the resignation of Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. Hong Kong stocks ended lower yesterday on growing concerns about the property market crisis on the mainland. The Hang Seng Index slipped 316 points, or 1.5%, to 20,575. The Hang Seng Tech Index rose 0.1%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite eased 1% to 3,272. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index slumped 4.7%, taking its losses over the past three weeks to almost 34%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is 3% lower this morning at $103.89 a barrel. Gold is 1.3% firmer at $1,718 an ounce. U.S. Treasury yields fell on Thursday in the wake of the ECB's decision to raise interest rates. The two-year Treasury yield fell 14 basis points to 3.09%, while the 10-year yield fell by 15 basis points to 2.88%. The yield curve remains inverted, with yields on shorter-dated debt higher than that on longer maturities. Traders commonly interpret that as a signal of an impending recession. And the dollar eased. After the ECB's rate increase, the US dollar index fell 0.4% overnight, but it's still up 1.8% this month and over 11% this year. The euro strengthened 0.4% to $1.02. The Japanese yen is at 137.13 against the dollar. Sterling is worth $1.20 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 42 cents. The Chinese yuan is trading at 6.77 versus the dollar in offshore markets. And Bitcoin fell 2% to $23,100. Asian stock markets looking a little bit weak at the open this morning. In Australia, the ASX 200 down a quarter of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.1% right now. The Cosby in South Korea also down about 0.1%. Futures markets pointing to a loss of about 125 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Coming up to 8.10, let's welcome our guests. As always on a Friday morning, we have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Ben Quinlan, the CEO and managing partner at Quinlan & Associates. Morning, Ben. Morning, Peter. Let's start with ECB. Raised interest rates, as you heard there, for the first time in 11 years. The deposit rate facility raised from minus half a percent to zero. Inflation in the eurozone is at 8.6%. That's more than four times the ECB's target. The interest rates in eurozone have been negative since 2014 to try and boost the region's economy. After years of negative growth, the 50 basis point increase is also double the guidance that's given by the ECB at its last meeting in June. Andrew, I wonder what your thoughts are about this. It's not going that well for the ECB at the moment, is it? Certainly not according to plan. Well, uh, yeah, not according to plan. But <laughs> strangely enough, if, if one takes really the accounting view, 
they had a negative interest rate for deposits with the central bank, negative interest rates for deposits. I was, they wanted to discourage banks holding money with the central bank and do something else with it. Now, okay, the negative deposit has gone down to zero. In a sense, they discourage less. I'm not quite sure whether they are on the way, okay, to having positive interest rates, but right now they have zero interest rates as opposed to negative. It is a sign, okay, but uh, it is always a kind of a mixed sign. And most importantly, I love it. I absolutely adore this, Peter. The Japanese on the other side of the world are saying we are staying with zero Mm -hmm. interest rates, we are staying with further expansion of our monetary base, and we want more inflation. Mm -hmm. Not less inflation. Hold, hold off on the Bank of Japan for a moment, because I'm going to get to them in just a moment. I'm sure you're going to have plenty to say about them. But Ben, uh, the ECB, uh, it wanted inflation. It's got more inflation than it can shake a stick at now, 8.6%. So do mm-hmm. do negative interest rates, do they work? <sighs> Look, I, I, I haven't been a big fan of central banks for a very long time. Um, I think they've caused far more problems uh, than they've brought solutions over the past uh, decade. And I think we've just been on this debt fueled binge around the world with no understanding of the need that sometimes a bit of creative destruction through a bit of a reset in economies is not the worst thing. Um, and, you know, coming out of this cycle, we'll see. I mean, turning the interest rates, as Andrew set up, from a negative to basically zero isn't exactly a phenomenal move, in my view. And if you look at taming inflation, again, most of the inflation that I see happening at the moment is basically cost push factors. These are things that are being affected by the supply chain. These are the raw material inputs. So when you tighten the actual demand belt, I'm really keen to see how much this is going to put a hold on inflation going forward. I don't think it will have necessarily the effect that you would expect uh, to see. Do you think Europe is ready for um, interest rates that are turning positive? Because they've been used to so long now, haven't they? Uh, investors, uh, business people, just having free money. Um, you know, And that's, as you said, has created this sort of bubble because um, people can just borrow money for nothing. They don't have to think about where they invest it or whether they put it into productive projects or not. But are they ready for that change? Uh, I don't. I don't think anyone's been in that mindset for such a long time. Free money has just been a norm for for as long as I can remember since I've been in this industry. It's it's ridiculous. And and I think it's also augmented the way that people's consumption behaviors and risk profiles have evolved. And once you start to shift that pendulum, I'm wondering how businesses, investors, as you say, you mentioned very valid things, how is the market really going to react? And again, it's one of these things, even when I look uh, it, personally, okay, rates are on the rise. What does that mean in terms of the market outlook? It's a bit wobbly, but then there's inflation eating away at my uh, cash earnings. So where do I put my money? And I think everyone is a bit confused at the moment. So I don't think anyone is ready <laughs> at all. Andrew, what do you think about um stagflation do you think the eu is heading for stagflation it's got high inflation already hasn't it the economy is slowing um it could even go into recession if russia cuts off uh european gas to germany um three parts to the answer recession means uh, two quarter on quarter negative growth 
Okay, and for example, saying that China is going into recession, it's not true. Okay, so because then recession means anything. A recession means any deceleration in the rate of growth. So you could be growing at 10%, you grow at 9%, and that's a recession. Well, no, it isn't. Again, nobody's talking yet about negative growth, because if a negative growth tend to be year on year, okay, as opposed to quarter on quarter, and add on to that, that very frequently, these are quarter on quarter annualized, and you get a completely meaningless expression. So mm. recession means absolutely nothing, means however you define it. So if we're saying, is the European Union going into a recession, if it means the GDP growth has decelerated, well, yes. Okay, and uh, so does everybody else. But is that what we really genuinely mean by recession? Mm-hmm. I, I, I hate I hate personalized versions of, of definitions. The second point is, is uh, something that my colleague here referred to, and that is increases in interest rates are not going to bring the prices of oil or the prices of Ukrainian wheat down. I mean, this is a, this is an absurd uh, version of that uh, uh, of a scattergun approach. You know, you fire enough, uh, enough uh, bullets and uh, some of them will hit something that will cause the price of milk and shoes to come down. And incidentally, and that's my third point, hello, we've had massive drop in inflation in asset prices. Mm. Why this doesn't count? You know, uh, stock markets are down not less than 20% year-to-date in U.S. dollar terms. And nobody has saying, well, we beat inflation, didn't we now? Mm. No, because prices of assets are not including the CPI. Whoa. And then, of course, the argument against the poor central banks was that they caused inflation in financial assets. Well, now they uncaused it. Okay, but they cannot cause uh, uh, inflation to come down in the prices of bread and shoes. The answer is, is because they can't. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Um, uh, and what do you make of this new ECB bond buying program, which it calls, what is it, the Transmission Protection Instruments. Basically what it's supposed to be doing is stopping um, interest rates rising or bond yields rising too much in some countries uh, versus what they see as being the core yields in, in Germany. And I suspect they're, they're focusing on Italy at the moment, which uh, they say yields are rising for unwarranted reasons, although they seem to me to be very warranted given the government's just resigned <laughs> and there's a um, but potential crisis there. But do, is this going to work? It's, I, we shall see yet another safety net or some kind <laughs> of embedded protection mechanism within a central bank policy to trying stop, to reverse its policy to stop the market them. working really isn't it yeah. <laughs> because it doesn't like the way the market's going exactly so you know any of this distortion that seems to be coming from central banks in financial markets for this period of time is just so unbelievably unhealthy because it creates huge amounts of moral hazard and again questions around exactly the parameters of what the conditions of this means and i've read text of it it's a bit fluffy so we'll see peter i mean uh, i just think far too much intervention far too many you know far too many exceptions to the rule um we'll see how this works but i'm not a big fan of all of this distortion in intervention i think it has to stop what, what do you think andrew do you like this idea of the ecb trying to intervene when it thinks the market has got it wrong for what it says are unwarranted reasons well, let's, uh, let's be politically correct uh, and give poor Miss Lagarde due credit because she actually said, I don't like this at all and we won't use it. 
until we decide to use it. It was a midnight special or a weekend special in her, in her bag. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you about your favorite central bank in the world then, the Bank of Japan. They're moving – well, they're, they, they are now basically the only – dovish uh, central bank among the world's major ones, or the most dovish anyway. They've been left on their own now that the ECB and the Swiss central bank have raised interest rates. Can they keep going with negative interest rates when they're uh, rising quite rapidly elsewhere in the world? Peter, Peter, hang on a minute. I'm sorry. I, I, I hate correcting anybody because this is a factual thing. Another dovish bank is the People's Bank of China, remember? Not as dovish uh, as the Bank well, of Japan, though, are they? They, they, they well, don't yeah, have ne- they, they, negative rates. Yeah, they, have, they have not increased interest rates. On the contrary, they have actually, actually, they did decrease interest rates very little about six months ago. And they also, in the last 12 months, they have cut reserve requirements. So mm. it is, there are two of the four biggest economies in the world. Two of them are either cutting interest rates or keeping them to zero. So the answer is, is uh, uh, why and where will the Bank of Japan go? No, they took a page out of the 101 economics, the course that I used to teach for 22 years, and that is you can control the price, but you cannot control the quantity, or you can control the quantity, but you cannot control the price. So they said, we are going to control the price, and we are going to let the forex exchange rate find its own level. So that is brilliant. It's good for their exports, and it's incredibly good for inflation. I mean, they're, they're having their cake and eat it. You know, I, I really, I really, I would give them the Nobel Prize in in central banking right now. <laughs> they're they're ticking all the boxes. Well, what do you think about the uh, the Bank of Japan? Can they keep going like this? It seems to me that um, it was all a little bit contrived, wasn't it? Because they cut their uh, growth forecast, re- raised their inflation forecast, and then said, "Oh, by the way, we've got to keep interest rates negative." Yeah, well, I mean, again. <laughs> Again, Japan's been structurally in a very different place for a much longer period of time. So coming off a slightly different perspective, um, we'll see how they maintain it. Again, I think when it comes to economics, Peter, it's one of these things where, uh, again, all all I'm going to do is probably get wrong, like most of the central banks. We'll we'll see how the Japanese situation pans out. But uh, I think with what uh, comment that Andrew mentioned before, it's, it's been interesting to look at the relative positions of each economy and how much capacity monetary policy has to move. Um, with Japan, it's basically been at where it's at for such a long period of time. Europe, again, negative interest rate territory has been bizarre for me. And I think that that experiment is ultimately showing that it did not work and does not work. Um, and then China, I think that's a very interesting next part of a discussion if you wanted to talk about that, because there's a lot more capacity to move there. And I think the one thing that they do have that most economies don't is a huge amount of fiscal firepower if they want to use it. Andrew, tell me about the US dollar. The JP Morgan Asia dollar index is down 6% so far this year. The US dollar has sort of um, come off a little bit in the last few days. But this dollar strength, what sort of problems is that causing for Asian economies? Well, I would say it's not a matter of causing problems, it's causing opportunities. In other words, their exports are now significantly cheaper in terms of the level they were as far as the United States is concerned. Also, and this is very important, a lot of the Asian economies export and inputs from each other. And uh, if one looks at the differentials, for example, between uh, yen and uh, the renminbi, uh, sorry, 
between the Korean won and the renminbi, between the Korean won and the Filipino peso, between the Filipino peso and the Thai baht, you're going to get some very interesting little experiences. In other words, the notion that all the Asians have weakened against the US dollar does not mean that all the Asians have weakened against each other and against other characters. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is genuinely interesting, okay? Because a lot of the trade in Asia is trade between different Asian economies, not just with the United States. If it was just the United States and the European Union, well, they're doing quite nicely. Okay, Ben. Uh, we saw the Asian Development Bank lower its growth forecasts for developing Asia for the fir- third time this year. Also, cut its forecast for for China from. Um, Five percent to four percent is is the strong dollar part of the reason for that? Is it is it causing problems for Asian economies and exporting basically U.S. inflation around the region? Yeah, I I think it's creating some challenges. Again, it's it's great from an importer perspective, but never good from a, an export perspective as well. Um, I mean, it 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 really depends on the trade settlement currencies between these economies, as Andrew was mentioning, obviously. Uh, different economies trading in different currencies with the whole situation, U.S. dollar, it will be driving a lot of problems associated with the cost of their imports. And then mm-hmm. I think a lot of economies as well will be thinking around what that means for their consumption profile. And I, I'm, I'm curious as to, as to how this is going to play out, but I'm not surprised that growth as a whole, given the interconnectedness of trade with the U.S., uh, and with China, just given the supply chain issues, is then having a knock-on and spillover effect into developed Asia. There's, there's no question that this will ultimately play out in the region here. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ben. That's Ben Quinlan, CEO and Managing Partner at Quinlan & Associates, and Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Coming up to 8.25. On the phone now is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Let's get your thoughts then on the ECB. Um, raised interest rates by more than people were expecting and more than its own guidance as well, actually, from minus half a percent to zero. Do you think, though, it's still way behind the curve when inflation is uh, 8.6%? Well, I think it's uh, it's consistent with what we've seen with other central banks Um playing a bit of catch-up here. So not surprised ECB moved. I think we were forecasting 50 basis points. I think they've now taken a little bit out of that forward guidance uh, to give themselves some flexibility around data. And I think one of the reflections there is, um, is inflation peaking with commodity prices coming off? So not to not to preempt too much uh, in relation to next moves. So I think we're at the next meeting is in September because you've got the August break. Um, we expect another 50 basis points there and send maybe some 25 basis point hikes after that. So a little bit of a catch-up um, and not a, um, inconsistent with what we've seen with other banks. Mm. The ECB is facing really a perfect storm here, isn't it? It's got inflation, what, four times, more than four times its targets, the economy slowing. It's got uh, potentially Russia cutting off gas, which could send the, the EU economy into recession. And now it's got a political crisis in Italy as well. It's got a lot of problems to try and deal with here. Yeah, not an easy uh, task to manage, uh, uh, to navigate. uh, What everyone's trying to do now with inflation is to navigate a soft landing for economies by raising interest rates and slowing uh, demand. Uh, So very, very difficult and complex. Uh, Europe is complex, as you know, uh, with the union 
uh, Italy uh, going to the polls most likely mid-September. Um, it may lead to the ECB having to implement its TPI, which is its sort of transmission protection instrument, which is aimed at trying to avoid a dislocation in some of the economies within the union when, as interest rates rise. So, yeah, it's going to be a very complicated period. It'll be very fascinating in many ways to see how you, uh, the ECB can manage uh, through and uh, Italy being probably the first um, uh, most critical point to look at the, poli- the politics and uh, the potential dislocation that could occur there. I'm wondering what, what are the impacts for the Asia region of what the ECB is doing, what the Fed is doing? I suppose the main um, transmission mechanism to out here is through the US dollar, which has been surging uh, this year, although it did come off a little bit, didn't it, the last two or three days. But presumably that's going to be where the, the major impact is going to come from for Asian economies. Well, I think if you look at markets generally, people look at um, uh, FX movements against a US dollar. So, of course, uh, INR rupee is at record lows uh, relative to dollar, but is actually uh, appreciated against the euro as, a, as an example. So I think in the previous segment there, they were talking about the different um, uh, impacts of either yen, uh, yen cross, uh, euro cross, and So, but most of it is in sentiment terms, dollar cross. So clearly, um, in emerging markets, uh, weaker U.S. dollar, sorry, weaker uh, cross against U.S. dollar is having an impact in terms of FDI flow as the risk-off attitude goes towards dollar assets versus uh, emerging market assets. So um, the key, I think, is always, and I think I say it a lot, but uh, this velocity is main, ensuring that the, the threat is not too aggressive to cause dislocation and the loss of confidence. And I think that's really where central banks uh, in emerging markets are trying to do is to let currencies depreciate against the dollar in a, in a manageable way, which has a, a competitiveness advantage, uh, but doesn't cause huge dislocation. And have they pulled that trick off in India? We've seen the Indian rupee hit another record low uh, this week. It's one around 80 per dollar. And foreign investors have pulled about $30 billion out of Indian equities so far this year. That's a, a record sum, isn't it? Yes, uh, but it has, it's been reasonably well throttled on the currency uh, by the central bank and they've got the reserves to be able to manage that for the time being. But yes, you mentioned it's uh, record lows uh, over the 80 mark uh, dollar INR. Um, the trade deficit's at a record uh, high uh, as exports declined from uh, external demand and imports increased through prices. So uh, some challenges there, but the domestic economy um, is big and uh, is uh, at least... Um, pivoting maybe away from a manufacturing decline or slowing in growth, but more in the services sector going very well. Most recent PMI in in, uh, in India in, in June was at 59.2 on services. Mm. Uh, and uh, so aggregate demand in India, the domestic side, is still pretty strong and looking fairly good. Any sign that the economic recovery in India is faltering because some of the, the high-frequency indicators are, are coming off a bit, aren't they? Yeah, I don't know if uh, listeners know about this uh, Bloomberg uh, Animal Spirits Index, which is sort of uh, a factor of eight high-frequency indicators uh, that sort of cover uh, India, um, and this animal spirits has declined a point um, in reference, which suggests that momentum has slowed. I think uh, clearly there is an impact uh, because of supply constraints, high commodity prices. But uh, if you look at the services sector, it's actually increasing and it had to... had a, a large increase. It's more on the manufacturing side. We're starting to see maybe some impact of, of these uh, of these negative uh, factors coming in. So we'll watch over the next quarter or two. We still suspect that the RBI will need to hike uh, another 50 basis points to curb inflation. 
but they are also committed to try to maintain growth momentum. And even though we've seen declines in forecasts of GDP in India, sort of 50 to 100 basis points across many of the economists, we're still looking at a growth rate of around 7% for this fiscal year. So uh, not bad for India still. Thanks very much, Toby. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. Um, in Australia, first of all, the ASX 200 is down 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up just very slightly, about 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea uh, is up about a quarter of a percent, but I'm afraid looks like further declines for Hong Kong stocks at the open. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 125 points for the Hang Seng when trading gets going in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Janice Wong and Andrew Work after the news. The weather forecast for today, sunny, very hot, as you probably noticed. Maximum temperature could reach about 35 degrees in the urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. Going to remain fine and very hot over the weekend and early next week as well. That very hot weather warning is still in force. The temperature right now is 29 degrees, 79% relative humidity. The Times 8.32, here's Andrew Shorosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Unionist lawmaker Lam Chun Singh says the government should consider legislation to protect workers from heat stroke if there's no reduction in the number of cases. Official statistics show that more than 50 people were treated for heat stroke over the past three years. Mr. Lam from the Federation of Hong Kong and Kowloon Labor Unions questioned whether employers would follow updated guidelines on working in hot weather announced by the government yesterday. The guideline is very clear. For example, the government will suggest you to arrange the work before 10 a.m. or after 4 p.m. and you should increase the airflow with good ventilation system and the workers should wear thin and permeable clothing and to provide shelter area for rest and cool drinking water. But it is not a legislation and only guideline, uh, only to encourage the employer to follow. So there's a question that whether most of the employer will follow the guideline. The government has announced tougher testing requirements for care home staff and visitors. From August the 1st, anyone planning to visit a care home will have to obtain a negative PCR test in the previous 48 hours. From next Wednesday, staff will have to undergo PCR testing every week instead of every two weeks. A vaccine pass will be needed from August the 28th. Dr. Chuang Chuk Kwan for the Center of Health Protection cited rising cases and infections at care homes. With the increasing number of cases in the community, there are lots of community transmission. So we also observed uh, uh, more cases in the uh, residential care homes. So we are afraid that the care homes, they are um, populated with um, frail elderly, and they may be suffering from more severe cases or even death. That's why um, we think that um, Increasing frequency of testing among the staff is a good move. President Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. In a statement, the White House said that Mr. Biden, who's 79, was experiencing very mild symptoms and was being treated with the antiviral medicine Paxlovid. The BBC's John Sudworth reports from Washington. 
It sounds a note of reassurance, really, pointing out that President Biden is double vaccinated and double boosted. His symptoms are, uh, to use their words, very mild. They say that he is being treated with an antiviral drug. They've also released a letter from President Biden's doctor suggesting that those symptoms began uh, yesterday evening, describing the symptoms, uh, runny nose, uh, fatigue and occasional dry cough. Uh, but the White House statement making it very clear that it is business as usual. You've been listening to the news on RTHK.